Okay, welcome. It's a pleasure to welcome you all to this. It's the second seminar in this new seminar series, Social Movements Popular and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, my name is John Chalcraft. I'm a, a Associate Professor in Government and I, my work focuses on the Middle East. It's, uh, I, I want to say thank you to the Middle East Centre and to Sarah Mussery for organising this event. Uh, and the, the, the series more generally and to give a big welcome to uh, Dr. Maha Abdurrahman who uh, is here to discuss the paper that she circulated as well as the book that is growing out of the paper and the paper that you will have seen in Praise of Organization, Egypt Between Activism and Revolution. Maha is a lecturer in the Centre of Development Studies uh, at the University of Cambridge and she did her undergrad and her MA at the American University in Cairo and her PhD in the Institute for Social Studies in the Netherlands and her research uh, covers uh, a wide range of aspects of the sociology and politics of development. She has uh, I mean, her, her, she has a whole string of publications. One of her major books was the 2004 Civil Society Exposed, The Politics of NGOs in Egypt. She has some articles, but, and there's a forthcoming book that she's going to talk about, Egypt's Permanent Revolution on Protest Movements and Uprisings, and that's coming out with Routledge. So it's great to have her here because especially her current research is focusing on the problematics surrounding the Arab Spring, quote-unquote, and the Arab uprisings, the question of revolution in the 21st century, different kinds of social and political struggles. Uh, and of course this paper addresses very directly this very this key question of uh, organisation. And we have, and the format of the workshop is that Maha Abdurrahman will introduce her paper just for 10 to 15 minutes and link it to uh, the book she's writing and then we'll have 10 to 15 minutes from our discussant and then we'll get to discuss uh, the, the issues that are raised. Um, and we're lucky also to have uh, Ahmad Shokar as our discussant and he partly, I mean, he's finishing his PhD at, at New York University. He's in the joint program, History and uh, Department of Middle East and Islamic Studies there. And, he's, and he's, uh, his PhD is on uh, decolonization in Egypt uh, with special reference to the railways. Uh, but he's also spent two, the last two or three years working as a journalist in Egypt uh, for Masri al one of the major periodicals. Or was that before he started his PhD? But on and off, right? And you've been, and, and he's been very directly involved in some of the forms of activism and questions around which Maha's paper uh, is uh, oriented. So uh, I think we're, we're lucky to have Ahmad uh, Shokar here to, to discuss. Um, I should mention one of your publications, mm -hmm. the one you did in, in Merit, mm -hmm. on, uh, which some of you are nodding, you've seen obviously on, on which was the issue of Merit, it must have been 2011, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's this excellent magazine, Middle East Report and Information Project, uh, it must have been a 2011 issue of that, right? Okay, so... Uh, 
Sure. Oh, well, it depends which one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's welcome uh, Maha and the discussion with her, with her, with the tradition. <laughs> so the floor is open. Thank I'll be strict. Uh, I'm organisationally strict. And uh, within about 15 <laughs> minutes, so I'll, uh, okay. I'll try to draw your, your remarks to a close. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, John, for the invitation. Thank you, Ahmed, for accepting to take on this uh, job of being a discussant during your brief stint in the UK and your busy writing schedule. And thank you all for coming. Uh, what you've received is uh, a version of a published article that came out a couple of years ago. Uh, and this article uh, developed a life of its own and uh, became a chapter in my forthcoming book uh, with the title slightly different to what John said, it's Egypt's long revolution on, uprisings, uh, on protest movements and uprisings. And having submitted the book, I feel now I'm ready to write a book about writing the book on the Egyptian uprising. Uh, like many of uh, my friends and colleagues who were interested in protest movements and social movements in the first decade of the 21st century, I was uh, studying as a student of social movements and social science uh, developments that were taking place in Egypt since 2000 and especially 2002 and I was writing a bit about uh, the rise of different movements. By 2007 I started thinking about writing a book and by 2008 I started writing a book about protest movements in Egypt, uh, documenting and analyzing their tactics, their repertoire of actions and uh, the way they were organized and how they were challenging the authoritarian regime of Mubarak. Uh, by the time I started organizing my stuff and writing my uh, first ideas, uh, events overtook the book and myself and by the end of 2010, beginning of 2011, I had to leave the book project for a while uh, while I tried to keep up with the changes that were taking place and then I came back to it and uh, the focus hadn't changed much uh, it was still the new book was still about uh, protest movements in Egypt and this long decade of uprisings uh, but instead of ending it with uh, what I hope to be the marking line of the elections of 2011, I extended the time frame to look at the two, three years uh, that followed the ousting of Mubarak uh, in February 2011. And the focus became slightly different, or the question became slightly different, rather than simply uh, limiting myself to uh, describing uh, the different types of strategies and tactics of social movements. The question became, how do we understand uh, social movements uh, when they have to operate under different uh, contexts and within different major moments of historical change? Uh, I was first studying protest movements and social movements uh, under authoritarian regime, how they acted and behaved under authoritarian regimes. What were the skills that they were developing and tactics they were engaged in to challenge and chip away at this regime, how to expand the space for political mobilization, 
uh, and how to gain uh, some victories in redefining state civil society relations within a particular space that was available to them. However, as uh, we all know, uh, on the during the 18 days of the uprising, uh, for a very brief moment, uh, the situation changed. And maybe in this paper, uh, you would have read that I say that the protesters, the activists of those 10 years, uh, suddenly became revolutionaries. They found themselves in the position of revolutionaries that were expected to take the lead, uh, not in challenging the regime anymore, but in actually redefining uh, state power and drawing, redrawing uh, the, the political scene in Egypt. Obviously, it was a fleeting moment because very quickly uh, forces, counter-revolutionary forces and the old dinosaurs of Egyptian politics quickly uh, managed to draw the, the boundaries of the game and turned it, for example, SCAF turned it into uh, a protracted transitional period uh, where the security state remained intact, where business and capital state nexus uh, attempted to reproduce their interests and the long hopefuls in the Muslim Brotherhood found a way to uh, promote their own project and interests. However, for this brief moment, uh, the question uh, I think hit us all. Uh, what were the challenges that faced those activists slash revolutionaries and how did the history of their experience as activists within social movements have shaped their potential uh, to play uh, a different role under these new circumstances. And what does it tell us about social movements uh, and the tools uh, we so much celebrate about social movements? Um, in the book, I try and look at the lineage of the protests. And there's been a lot of publications and research about the lineages of Arab revolutions, uh, mainly looking at how activism and protest led to the moment of the 25th of January, or how the political economy and a rising new economic order uh, led to increasing grievances that led to the 25th of January. Uh, my focus is more on how the lineage of activism and protest movements shaped the opportunities and the potential of a revolutionary force to develop out of the 25th of January uh, moment. And I examined some of uh, the history and the features that characterized uh, this decade of protest slash social movements. Uh, for example, I look at uh, the, the feature of cross-ideological cooperation between groups from different political and ideological camps and how, how this was successful under Mubarak, but what it meant for creating uh, a revolutionary movement in the down, uh, aftermath of the downfall of Mubarak. Uh, what I'm discussing here is particularly the point about organization, the question of organization. Uh, what form of organizational structures, in the larger sense, uh, characterized protest movements and social movements in Egypt during the decade 2000 to end of 2010, uh, and how this has shaped 
the way newly minted revolutionaries uh, could uh, bolster their energies and harness the energies of the masses uh, towards uh, building uh, uh, an alternative that could stand up to counter-revolutionary forces, namely the military, the security state, and the Muslim Brothers, if you wish. Um, if we look at the history of uh, activism and protest movement in Egypt from 2000 till 2011, we can categorize it very, very generally into three broad areas. One is the pro-democracy movement, uh, another is the labor movement between uh, uh, inverted commas, and uh, more uh, spontaneous, uh, unorganized, citizen protests uh, that swept the country for over a decade. If we examine the pro-democracy movement, so activists and groups varying from Kifaya, which everybody knows, to uh, the 9th of March uh, group for academic freedoms, to uh, doctors without rights, to engineers for democracy, to the street is ours, and I can go on and on listing the names. We find that what characterized the experience of these groups and the activists who uh, engaged in them was the absence uh, of a clear organizational structure. Rejection of hierarchical, centralized uh, points of decision making. They all operated on the principle of coordination rather than decision making. Uh, they were antithetical and they were against the idea of a leadership. Uh, of uh, someone who can lead a group and inspire uh, members. Uh, and uh, they uh, had a fluid um, approach to politics. For one thing, they were not only working to challenge the Mubarak regime and authoritarianism, but to challenge old forms of politics and formal institutions of politics. That was very clear in uh, their discussions and in their uh, decisions to organize events and so on. Uh, and that's part of what we know about new social movements. What Wallenstein, I think I quote him in the paper I shared with you, uh, is what characterizes new social movements uh, and differentiates them from old social movements is their a lack of interest in capturing state power. This is not the objective of new social movements. Hence, uh, the, and also an aversion to the idea of a Leninist-style centralized uh, political uh, group uh, with professional leadership and iron discipline and so on and so forth. So a lot of the activists uh, were very painfully aware of old models of political organization and were working specifically to break away from these models and introduce new forms of politics more than the simply challenging Mubarak and his uh, regime. Uh, I said I talk about organization in a larger sense, not just simply the hierarchical structure of it, but the idea of uh, a long-term vision or strategy that's integral to the question of organization. And in most of these groups, if not all of them, uh, 
the work that was carried out was organized on short-term tactical principles. Uh, there was no interest in formulating long-term strategies or visions for a future uh, beyond Mubarak or beyond the elections of 2011. There, were, there was no need to think beyond uh, the immediate moment. And one uh, thing that uh, contributed to that was the cross-ideological nature of these groups. Almost every one of these groups was based on cooperation between uh, leftist groups, different factions, uh, liberal groups, uh, Muslim Brotherhood, factions of the Muslim Brothers, of liberal uh, groups and parties, and so on and so forth. And that, without saying, uh, it goes that it was based on short-term tactical uh, idea of how to work. Similarly, uh, workers in Egypt uh, also were challenging formal institutions, the idea of the corrupt uh, centralized trade unions, and were working uh, against the management, the government, but also against this model of hierarchical organizations and trying to create alternative forms. Uh, farmers, uh, with the massive wave of protests desperate and isolated as it was, uh, did not create any form of organization or leadership in its loose uh, form. Whatever uh, local council or village council that appeared after uh, the introduction of the land reform uh, that countered the rights of tenants uh, was crushed swiftly and nothing came in its place. The point I'm uh, trying to put forward is that these tactics and strategies uh, worked very well under Mubarak. They served the purpose of uh, these groups uh, to challenge the regime, to escape the heavy hand of the security state, and to attract and mobilize a large number of young people, and not so young, who were uh, very skeptical of old politics. The question is, can the same uh, principles and the same structures of social movements uh, work or can adapt to new realities. Uh, immediately after the downfall of Mubarak and the immediate takeover by the SCAF and uh, the return of the security state, well not the return, the continuation of the security state and the capital uh, state nexus, uh, these groups founded an activist and the millions uh, who were inspired by them found it very difficult to create a revolutionary front or a form of a body uh, or even a project uh, that could uh, stand up or at least be in a less weak position vis-a-vis uh, forces of the counter-revolution. I mean, Gramsci reminds us that every revolution has a counter-revolution. However, the ease with which counter-revolutionary forces uh, can defeat a revolutionary current uh, brings us to the question of who the revolutionaries are and what they are capable of. Uh, so the question of organization uh, has become very important, and I'm often... Uh, criticized or attacked by friends and otherwise that I do promote a Leninist uh, strategy that from what I say it's clear that what I'm calling for is a centralized uh, organization. But 
not that I'm denying it but <laughs> or find myself having to defend that position but it's not what I'm trying to say what I'm trying to say is that the question of organization is very pertinent uh, to our understanding in the situation in Egypt uh, and that um, it has relevance to our understanding not just of the situation in Egypt but of the global social movements uh, across the world and what they are aiming to uh, achieve. Uh, some of the most prominent figures in the global justice movement, for example, are talking about uh, not knowing the way is part of the revolution. Uh, and another, Naomi Klein, for example, addressing the World Social Forum in uh, 2004, I think, said that uh, our problem is not finding a vision. Our, the issue is not to be too rushed into finding a vision. Visions are there, but we have to take our time in finding a vision. And not knowing the way is part of the process, which is all very well and fine, but what does this mean during a moment when uh, the structure of power relations, uh, when there is a crisis situation, what does it mean uh, for members and activists and those partaking in social movements? And I mm. see I have to stop here. Thank okay, you. Great. Okay, so we now have 10 to 15 minutes of med to uh, take up the discussion. Wonderful. Uh, well, I'm delighted to be here, and um, thank you, Matt, for uh, a very engaging uh, paper. Uh, I think it's, it's very clear and, and offers important reflections on uh, the state of contentious politics in Egypt uh, since 2011 uh, in terms of both its... <coughs> its strengths and its uh, limitations. Um, and I think the paper uh, really provides a good uh, overview, first of all, of the kinds of political mobilization that existed in the lead up to January 25th. Um, you remind us that in the decade prior to the, to the revolt, uh, quote, not a day passed without several incidents of collective contentious uh, action across the country. Um, and, and the paper goes on to provide a, a framework that allows us to uh, think of the multiplicity of uh, forms of social and political uh, protest that opened up a new space of street politics uh, during the final decade of Mubarak's rule, uh, a space that had previously been uh, closed off. Uh, and in doing so, I think you offer a useful corrective to uh, popular accounts of the 2011 uh, revolt that um, emphasize its novelty and spontaneity um, and can sometimes treat the revolt as though uh, it had no historical uh, antecedents. Um, <clears throat> I think the paper also uh, uh, foregrounds the question of uh, political organization, as you said, which has been key, if not uh, the key question in the uh, Egyptian revolutionary process. Uh, I think it succinctly captures um, what, what I think is one of the central dilemmas of the 2011 revolt, which is um, that there was a mass uprising uh, uh, without mass-based organizations, right? with, the, with the exception of the Muslim Brotherhood, and possibly the state, to the extent that one wants to consider the state, or at least some of its institutions, a kind of mass-based organization. Um, and, so, and the paper goes on to portray a political landscape in Egypt that, um, although being quite dynamic and, and changing over the last uh, 10 years, was also characterized by very 
um, sort of weak and fragmented social movements that could not serve as the basis after January 2011 for building uh, strong organizations that could have a significant impact on the uh, political struggle in Egypt. Um, and in the final analysis, I think, uh, I think Maha, that you're right to warn um, that the absence of uh, sustainable uh, organizational structures, um, while uh, appropriate during the period of mass demonstrations that toppled Mubarak, um, now pose, and I'm quoting, one of the main challenges to the survival uh, of a potential for genuine revo revolutionary change in post-Mubarak Egypt. Um, and I think this is, this is an imperative that has resonated with at least some of Egypt's revolutionary activists, at least uh, recently. Uh, I recall reading a, a very interesting collection of uh, opinion articles uh, on the occasion of uh, last January 25th on the third anniversary of the revolt, which brought together a, a diverse array of different activists to reflect critically on the experience of the last uh, three years. Um, and, and I think many of them were sort of writing in this vein of, you know, well, what went wrong and, 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 and where to go from here. Uh, you know, expressing a similar conviction, Ziad al-Alimi, who was one of the leading members of the Revolution Youth Coalition in Egypt, uh, wrote, a, wrote, a, wrote an op-ed titled, uh, The Alliance of the Antis is Finished and Must Be Substituted with an Alliance of the Pros, right? Um, so, so yes, yeah, so I think you're largely correct in, in this assessment that what one might call uh, a, a politics of, of disruption, right, of spontaneous and innovative forms of protest, uh, mass rallies, confrontations with police even that interrupt the ordinary life and routines of the state um, must ultimately give way or at least be complemented um, by something more sustainable that can bring about a more lasting set of transformations uh, to the power structure uh, in Egypt. Um, now, that said, the paper uh, did raise several questions uh, about Egypt's trajectory over the last few years, as well as about the future of the struggle um, to build a new political order. And I was, as I was reading the paper, one of the first um, questions that came to mind were, was, um, well, what's, what's the reason for this, uh, this, this organizational deficit, if we can call it that, or a deficit of a particular kind of, of organization that you're describing? Um, is it primarily that activists have shunned, have actively shunned traditional, more centralized forms of organization like political parties and have refused actively to take state power? Um, uh, is it that they have largely exhibited a preference for these more horizontal forms of, of organization, these diffuse networks that John, we wrote about in Marip and others have, have written about? Um, and on, on this point, I, I think I'd caution, especially in the, in the period after 2011, I'd caution against drawing too sharp a distinction between uh, social movements, uh, which are diffuse and decentralized on the one hand, and political parties, which are centralized and structured on the other. Um, there are, as we know, several new parties that were established after January 25th um, and that have competed in elections. And uh, you know, one thing I, I've observed is that m many activists who come out of the, kinds of the kind of background you're describing, who are active with the Revolution Youth Coalition, who, who are active with any number of these uh, uh, youth groups that were uh, 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 directly involved in the January 25th protest, are also members and in some cases founders of political parties um, have actively participated in presidential campaigns. Um, many of the groups that you mentioned towards the end of the paper, uh, the, the Drop Egypt's Debt group, uh, which I was a member of, or some of the trade unionists involved in the independent labor movement, 
are or have been or are closely affiliated with, with political parties. Um, and I think the question that's been in my mind over the last couple of years um, has not so much been you know, new social movements versus parties, but more what kind of parties are being created? Uh, what are their goals? What internal mechanisms for deliberation and decision-making have they created in order to make the parties uh, more inclusive and more effective? Um, who are their target constituencies and how effectively do they reach out to them? Um, and on that um, count, I think the, the record of these new parties has been uh, quite mixed. Um, now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to... We could talk about this more in the discussion, but that's, that's an interesting um, question to, uh, to consider. Um, you know, also, the fact that many of these activists we're describing have, you know, rather than coming together and trying to form a single front or single party after 2011, what's often happened is they go off into different parties and then within those parties begin to wage battles internally for more accountability, more, more democracy, more, more, that, that sort of thing. That's, that's been a, an interesting phenomenon to follow. Um, but, but it is true, however, that... that um, efforts to create political parties, which many of these revolutionary activists have participated in, um, have been somewhat haphazard and disorganized. Um, and, uh, and this is partly because they grew out of a protest movement uh, in, in the 2000s that was uh, dominated by groups like Kifaya and its offshoots <laughs> and April 6th, um, which, as you argue, um, did not have a, a strategy for the takeover of state power, nor was that something they even seemed interested in. Um, but I wonder whether whether that has more to do with the wider ideological context in which these groups were operating and less so with the with the um, the personal preference of, of individual activists for one form of organization uh, over another. Um, you know, I think it's it's not as though there was a ready made uh, a model of effective revolutionary organization that was there and, 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 and these activists rejected. Um, it's that I think many many were operating in this wider context where uh, since the 80s there's been a, a decline uh, in, in ideologies of Arab nationalism, Marxism, even different strands of revolutionary um, Islamism um, that, 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 that had been much more uh, prominent in the past uh, and yeah, a revolutionary activist today or even a few years ago I think might be hard pressed to find a compelling ideological framework within which to theorize state power and to strategize, let alone strategize how to, how to take it over um, and yeah, I'd be interested to, to hear what yeah, your observations about that um, especially as you were talking about cross ideological um, cooperation um, because yeah, in that context I think it's no surprise that most of the parties that have been formed um, since 2011 uh, are or consider themselves to be uh, either non-ideological in character right? so parties like the Stuart and the Social Democratic Party uh, or are populists right? like, like the popular current and there's a lot being written now about populism and what it means and to what extent it's political or anti-political and we can, we, we can discuss that whole um, thing um, but yeah and uh, I, I think yeah, this, is, this is definitely um, it's a broader phenomenon. It hasn't just been limited to Egypt. Um, I think uh, you know the same exists. The same sort of dynamic exists in many um, parts of the world today that are witnessing uh, different kinds of upheaval in, in Turkey, in Ukraine, in Brazil, where uh, people, especially on the left, uh, are, are 
sort of struggling to harness the energy of popular movements on the street um, and failing to offer compelling alternatives. Um, and I, I think the problem is a, is a deficit in the political imagination um, more so than, than in the individual preferences of, of people for one, for a particular kind of organization over another. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, and then on the question of, of alternatives, um, I think you know one part of, of, of thinking about alternatives uh, uh, is from the perspective of an activist or someone involved in a political party is having a clear idea of who one's uh, target constituency is. Right? Who who are you speaking to? Who are you immersing yourself amidst? Uh, trying to mobilize, and for the most part, and I think you hint at this as well in the paper groups like. Uh, the Café uh, and April 6th and, and the parties that have now grown out of them have not had a clear vision of who it is they're speaking to um, and trying to mobilize. Um, I, I, was, I, was, I was struck by um, a section in the paper where I know you said this is not about uh, you know, neoliberalism and the broader that, that it's more about the lineage of activism that shaped the forms of organizing after January 25th, um, but but there is a section where you do bring up the the free market reforms post 2004, um, and you write that the the structural changes um, by which you mean the privatization, um, the growing ties between crony capitalists and politicians, rising poverty and unemployment, um, th that these structural changes created the conditions for a myriad of informal political groups, activist forums, political coalitions, and protest activities to alter the face of Egypt's um, opposition politics. Um, and it struck me because, I, like, while, while I think that's true, it's true that these economic transformations were directly responsible for spurring the wave of labor protests that happened since the mid-2000s. Um, it, it wasn't clear to me how that was the case for what you describe as the pro-democracy movement um, because few of those groups, whether it's Kefaya or April 6th or later on the Khalid Said campaign or the National Association for Change that was created around uh, the reform advocate Mohammed al-Baradai, um, none of these people were explicitly challenging privatization or the economic uh, policies of the previous decade. And a major criticism of these groups from the left and from some segments uh, of, of organized labor um, was that they didn't work to build stronger alliances with um, the labor movement. Um, now, on the other hand, I think these groups were much more caught up in another aspect of Egypt's liberal transformation, um, which doesn't appear in the paper, but perhaps you write about it in the book, which is the expansion of the security state. Um, you know, it's, for me, it's, it's, it's hard to make sense of the revolution without um, talking about uh, police, right? It was youth outrage over police abuse that prompted the initial protests. Uh, it, the, the targeting of policemen, police stations are what eventually broke the regime's back on January 28th. And, uh, you know, demands for uh, justice and police accountability and against police abuse have continued to fuel one cycle of protest after another. Um, and and you know, the growth of the police apparatus in Egypt is, is very much a part of the transformations of the last 40 years. I mean, the you know, Semir Suleiman, Hazim uh, Andin, Salwa Ismail to some extent. I mean, a number of people have, have been writing about this and trying to historicize it. Um, and I, I think the, the, the prominence of a security state um, obviously affects the question of organization because on the one hand, it, it limits the organizational potential of activist uh, of activists and political groups and you know the ones I've been amidst in the, in the last few years and, and even before 2011 um, you know, so much energy is spent responding to repression planning legal support for detainees demanding the release of prisoners um, 
But a security state also creates a potential constituency on, around the issue of police abuse um, that I think has been largely untapped, especially by political parties. Right? There's huge numbers of Egyptians that are um, affected directly by uh, the police state. Uh, families of detainees have been present at nearly every major protest um, that, uh, that I've seen in the last three years, uh, uh, at least in Cairo. And they're always the ones that stay till the end, even you know, during and sometimes after the protests have been cleared out. Um, and you know, for national parties to be successful, I think they they have to be able to rally people around particular issues. Um, and although police were the main targets of, of many of the popular protests, they, there have been few efforts by revolutionary activists or activists in political parties to build a constituency around the issue of police abuse and police reform. Um, activists often treat police reform as though it's a technical issue that requires expertise and a mandate from the state rather than a political issue around which popular mobilization can be achieved and a political constituency built. And I feel like I've, I've heard of dozens of proposals that have been sent by one human rights organization or, or other to the parliament when it was active or to various ministers for police abuse but, but, but you know, no, no effort to, to kind of create the kind of uh, political constituency or, uh, or mobilization that I'm describing. And bearing that in mind, it's no surprise that police have been um, able to uh, rehabilitate themselves, at least to an extent, after June 30th. Um, okay, I only have one minute left, so I'll, uh, I'll yeah, say one last thing. Um, I know the paper was written before June 30th, but I was wondering if you could also say something about how the crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood might affect the political landscape in Egypt. 